As we journey back into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tonight, you can go ahead and turn there to Ecclesiastes 5, and we'll close out this chapter tonight. We are almost halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. There are 12 chapters, and so we will jump into chapter 6 next time as we look at this theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, living a meaningful life. Living a life in which we find satisfaction, in which we find joy and fulfillment. Um, That is the concern of uh, all people. Really, we we go all throughout life, people go looking for uh, meaning and fulfillment. And Solomon, time and again, shows us um, that there isn't anything to be found in this life alone. There's none of that, no meaning, no fulfillment, no joy um, in just the things of this life, but that's found in God, in knowing him, in having a relationship with him, in obeying him, right? He, He drives to Ecclesiastes 12, fear God, keep his commandments, remember the goads and the nails. And so tonight, In the last part of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in these last 13 verses, we see the futility of wealth Solomon talks about. He says here in Ecclesiastes 5, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In 1776, the American Declaration of Independence was penned, and the fight for freedom as a nation began. In that document, we find this phrase that has become synonymous with the American way of life. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Over the years, that, that last phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, has been used time and again to inspire what people have deemed the American dream, right? The question is, though, what is the pursuit of happiness? Many have come to equate uh, that pursuit or their, in their, this, this, uh, this dream in their lives with a pursuit of wealth and possessions, uh, with an easy life. And what they are doing is equating with, they're equating what you have with how happy you are. Solomon has made his way through life in this book, addressing all the things that people think will make them happy. All the things that, he, that people think will give them meaning and enjoyment and uh, some sort of, of purpose. But now he turns to a pursuit of wealth. And, and as with everything else, the, the focus here isn't how much, of, how much wealth you have, but the heart that's behind the pursuit of wealth. You notice in this chapter, Solomon never tags a dollar amount to what is wealth or the pursuit of that. You can be a millionaire or living paycheck to paycheck and find yourself represented in the passage tonight because what Solomon is going after here isn't the possessions, but the heart behind it. And what we see here in this chapter is the pursuit of money and possessions is unending and will never bring you true meaning and satisfaction. You can give your life to these things. We're going to look at what Solomon says about those who give their lives to these things. And again, there's no, well, if you have X amount, then this is who, you're, who Solomon's talking to, right? Because let's be honest, none of us in this room have anywhere near the amount of money that Solomon had, Right? He was the richest king Israel's ever seen. He, he had everything. What he is talking about is what do our hearts say about our, our lives? What do the pursuits of our lives say? What does the focus that we take say about who we are and where we're trying to find meaning in our lives? And this is true for one who doesn't know Jesus Christ, who, who lives for himself and the, and the sin of this world. And it's true for Christians who, who lose focus of living for the kingdom of God and instead live to, to, to make their own little kingdoms as cushy as they can be. And so let's see what Solomon says tonight in four different sections here. In verses 8 and 9, Solomon talks about wealth's corruption that takes place in our lives. And in verse 8, he says there's a reality of corruption that we're going to face in this life. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. You, you might be tempted to think, we all might think this at some point, that, that someone who's enjoying wealth and prosperity and power, they're going to want to, in their heart, help solve other people's problems. Perhaps we think that one who is enjoying life and wealth will want to help others enjoy life as well. I mean, surely one who has experienced good things in life will be given to a life of charity and compassion. But Solomon says this is not necessarily true because of the sinful nature of mankind. Instead, Solomon says there is a tendency with wealth to breed corruption. And he points us to a political picture here in verse 8. 
He tells us that this is something we may behold. We see here the oppression of the poor that's taking place in a certain, he says, if you see this in a province, and, and, and righteousness and justice are being violated there. And instead of people being helped that really need help, they're being exploited. In chapter 4, Solomon unpacked for us the problem of evil, and he talked a lot about these sorts of things in that chapter. And here again, Solomon points out that evil, and he points to wealth as a motivating factor for such corruption. He says, and when you see this, he says, don't be amazed. Don't be surprised. You know, sometimes, even though we know that we live in a fallen, sinful world, it's like it takes us off guard. We see something simple, we go, wow, why did that happen? Because people are sinful and evil and do sinful things. In fact, Solomon says, the reality of this is there is a chain of corrupt relationships that are going on. The high official who is corrupt and he's oppressing the poor has someone over him and someone over him and, and they all protect each other. They all, they all are feeding off the system, Solomon says. All the way to the top, you can trace it. Now, Solomon may not be here addressing his own kingdom. It may just be a general observation of life, but it is one we resonate with. It's one we see in our own day and time, right? People get into power through the corruption of money in politics, and they remain in power for an extended amount of time through the same corruption and money and politics, right? No matter how little they seem to do for the people who need the most help, it's like the system just continues to feed on itself. It's wrong, right? It's sickening. We wonder, why does that happen? Well, Solomon says... There, there are motivations behind such corruption in verse 9. He says, there's the motivation here. He says, this is gain, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. What Solomon says is at the top of this list is the king, is the ruler, right? In his, in his days, he looks out there. There's, there's someone at the end of all of it who is benefiting from the system and making it work. Underneath the king are all those who are scrabbling for power and position, and all the while, the the common people, so to say, they're the ones who are suffering. The problem is not seen and addressed, though, as long as those who are in power have what they want and what they feel they need. They are feeding themselves, making sure the fields are cultivated, they are taken care of. Interestingly enough, this verse also may seem to communicate that it seems better to people, it seems better to the, to the people of the country that to have a corrupt government as long as there's an organized government and a king. Yeah, I mean, we know the system's broken, but at least we have a system. And Solomon says, this is how the whole thing just kind of continues to work. We have to admit, it's not a good system. It's one that's tainted by the corruption of wealth. They keep people just happy enough while keeping their own pockets full. And as long as this happens, they're not bothered by other people's sufferings. And you know, it's interesting, when you read this, these verses, it reminds me a lot of what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you would keep your finger here and turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's a little bit of a longer passage, so I didn't want to put it up on the screen tonight. But in 1 Samuel 8, this is an important passage in the history of Israel. 
Because it's in this passage that the people come to Samuel, who is the judge, the last judge of Israel. And they say, listen, we don't, we don't want God to be the, the ruler of us anymore. We, we want a king. We like everybody else. You know, you look around, and they have a king, 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 and we want a king. And so Samuel talks to God, and God says, this is what you tell the people. And so Samuel comes, and he tells the people, this is what it's going to be like if you have a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards to give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's pretty heavy stuff. Samuel says, straight from the Lord, this is the character of what a king will be like. This is the necessity of, if you establish this type of government, this is what's going to happen. And as, if Israel cast off the rule of God alone and opted for a human king like everyone else, they would pay a high price. They would experience hardship and loss. They would be marginalized. They would cry out at the injustices they experienced. And indeed, they would experience all of these things. They were pressed into service of the kingdom that they longed for. And we know that Solomon himself enlisted many of his countrymen to work on his projects to promote his endeavors and serve his desires. What does Solomon say about wealth? It has the ability and the tendency to corrupt those who give themselves to it. This is not to say that every wealthy person is corrupt. Okay? So I want you to walk away with that one tonight. But those who get a taste of power and wealth and the benefits it brings to life, they have a battle to fight against such corruption. If they give their lives to that and, 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 and seek to, to hold on to it, the fear of losing it becomes great, and the actions to keep it seem to know no bounds. Wealth is futile if it has this effect on your character. And so now Solomon continues kind of feeding into this idea And in verses 10 through 12, we see wealth's covetousness. In verses 10 and 11, Solomon says there's a very dissatisfying experience that comes when you pursue wealth in life, looking for it to give you some sort of satisfaction. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Again, we may think that wealth will bring us eventual satisfaction. And indeed, we, we do this in our lives. Right? We set goals and targets. And there's nothing wrong with goals and targets, but, but when we think those kind of things are going to bring us uh, satisfaction, we're going to be severely disappointed. We say things like, 
well, when my bank account has this much money in it, then I'll feel like I have enough. When the, when the portfolio looks like this, then I'll know that I've, I've reached the level that I want to have there. When, uh, then then when, it, when all my investments mature, I'll have relief and rest and happiness, and then I'll have enough. But the opposite is true. There's no satisfaction with money. We read Solomon's statement in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. It's like cold water to the face. Because you would expect someone who loves something to be satisfied with that thing. And you could, say, you could substitute a lot of things, right? He who loves this will not be satisfied with that. But the one who loves money, Solomon says, isn't satisfied with the money he has. The one who loves wealth isn't satisfied with the income he experiences. Instead, Solomon says it feeds into covetousness. He wants more. There's always more money to get. There's always more wealth to accrue. There's always another deal to be made. There's always another way to reallocate your assets. And our sinful hearts constantly tell us that what we have right now isn't enough. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life. I have. I I want this. Money, possessions. You know, maybe you're a kid, right? You wanted this next toy or game. And when I have that, it's going to be awesome. And you get that. And it's great for a little bit, maybe. And then you say, what? I need something else. There's always more. And the system... It just becomes a system. It just feeds and feeds and feeds. And, and listen, our world knows that. I, many of you know this year we bought a house, right? And uh, when you buy a house, you take out a mortgage. Isn't that a fun experience, right? And I am amazed that monthly, okay, monthly, I receive a letter or an email and sometimes both, sometimes weekly from my mortgage company. They say, you know, you could take out an equity line of credit and, and you could get more stuff. And all I can think is, and pay you more money every month, right? Because that's the way the system works. It feeds on our covetousness that, hey, if you want more, here's how you get more. Here's how you go after the bigger and the better things. We believe that something will make us happy and fulfill a craving deep within our soul. And when it doesn't, in our sin, we don't step back and take a, take a look and say, okay, why not? Instead, we go further in. And we say, well, that didn't work, so let's do something else. And it's just more and more and more. And there's a time, there's a time in your life, if you are in here and, and you are part of the working force, there's a time in your life when the money that you make on a yearly basis, you would have said, yeah, that's more than enough money I'll ever need. And now you're looking at it going, well, I don't know how we're going to get through right? Or I don't know if this is going to be enough. Because why? Because our our sinful natures are just always more, more, more. We're not satisfied. Whatever you think that you need to solve your problems doesn't solve your problems. Instead, Solomon says it just creates more problems. Because this covetous nature and this dissatisfying experience isn't limited to just us who are taking in whatever it is. There are other people involved too. Solomon says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. 
what he's talking about is wealth, money, possessions. They have this way of people coming out of the woodwork when they hear what you have. They want to get a piece of what we have in our lives. They covet that wealth. Where you have money, you always have people who want that money. I will never forget how illustrated and how, how vividly illustrated this was for me. I, many years ago, I watched a documentary that aired on ESPN. The documentary was entitled Broke. And it was about athletes, multi-million dollar athletes, and how quickly when they got out of whatever profession they were in, lost their money. And the one story that stood out to me the most was uh, there was a, a, a young man who was drafted in the National Football League, and, and, and when he was drafted into the NFL, his mom sent him a bill for a million dollars and said, this is what you owe me for raising you. And I, I watched that, and I just, I was flabbergasted, right? And probably most of us are like, why would you do that? And for, I read the story again this week, for two years she hounded him for this money, saying, you owe me a million dollars, because I raised you, and he never paid her, just so you know. And we say, how could a mother suddenly demand this kind of money from her child? By the way, that's a bad idea. Don't do that, okay? How could she do this? Well, the answer is quite simple. She was covetous of that and believed it would make her happy. She was not interested in making a difference in her son's life. She merely wanted a pathway to her own well-being. And the truth is, in the situation like that or any other situation, money doesn't create covetousness and this, this dissatisfaction. It only reveals the things that are already present in our hearts. And that's why I say it goes back to the heart issue. No matter how much or how little we have, covetousness can rear its ugly head in our lives. I think sometimes we think ourselves safe from covetousness because, well, you know, I'm just not really a rich person, so I'm not going to be covetous. But there's no dollar amount on a covetous heart. And comparatively to the world we live in, we are wealthy people. We enjoy a decent existence in comparison with much of the world here in America. We enjoy freedoms and opportunities. We enjoy ease and comfort And the more we pursue these things, the more of them we want. The more we gain, the more we must protect, lest they get away from us and we are no longer able to enjoy the things we feel we we so desperately must have. Solomon says, where goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He watches them leave. Can't enjoy them. This is not the existence we were promised by these things. And so chasing wealth, Solomon says at the end of verse 10, ultimately is vanity. It's, it's hevel, it's empty. Who cares how much you have, how much it costs, and more, when you can't even enjoy it? You can look at it as you try to accumulate more and protect it from others, but those numbers don't do you or anyone else any good. It is a bottomless pit, offering you nothing to grab onto or find meaning. And it's a restless life. And that's exactly what Solomon says in verse 12. There's a restless existence here. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So Solomon shows us here there is a difference in the life of one who has wealth and is consumed by it and one who does not. He, he presents a picture. Here is a laborer, a worker, who has, who has worked hard and he rests well at night. Whether he eats little or much, he enjoys his honest rest and refreshment. Why? Because God's created purpose for man is to work. So therefore, when he performs an honest day's work, he's rewarded with godly rest. And so Solomon says, here is a, a common laborer who by any means is not considered wealthy. He doesn't even guarantee he's going to have a good meal. He may eat a little, he may eat a lot, but he has it better than the rich man. Why? Because in contrast, the wealthy one is worried. He's worrying over his wealth. He's coveting more wealth. He's guarding his assets from people who are trying to move in on him. What is the difference here? He's full all the time, right? Because he's wealthy. But he's restless. He's not fulfilling the purpose of God for his life. He's looking for fulfillment in the things of this life. And so he's enslaved to a God of his own making. He's kept awake, experiencing a full belly and an empty soul. That'll rob you of a restful, meaningful life. Now, it's not wealth that will rob you of that, but it's the enslavement to it, the purpose, this is what I'm going after in life. And all of this is for something that is not permanent and, in fact, is quite temperamental. And we see that in verses 13 through 17. There's a temperamentality to wealth. In verses 13 and 14, Solomon says, here's, here's some turning points that happened. There, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So one of the things that is always true about growing wealth is it is a risky business. If you continue to want more and more, and you want to seek to find uh, contentment and meaning in some sort of wealth and riches and, and possessions, you will have to make an effort to continually invest that. Solomon says, here's the, here's the evil. Okay? In verse 13, if you hold on to riches, they don't do you any good. Your money doesn't grow under the mattress, right? so to speak. It is necessary if you want to, if you say, I'm going to find meaning in this, you've got to put it out there and, and you've got to try to make it do more for you, make your money work for you, right? However, the reality is that not every venture or investment works out. So here's the scenario in verse 14. The wealthy man goes in search of more wealth and he puts his riches into a venture only to see the venture go south and he strips away all of his wealth. And this is not just a made up worst case scenario. This has happened and will continue to happen to people throughout time. In an effort to gain notoriety and increase fortunes, people throw in on risky ventures. They misread the market, they trust the wrong people, and suddenly there's nothing left. And maybe it's not always that. Sometimes the fortunes of people change in an instant. The economy tanks. And many who trusted in their wealth are left without anything to lean on. The investments don't pan out, the market crashes, or the so-called investment partners vanish. And now, that which seems so promising, and it's going to add another zero to your checking account, reduces it to a big fat zero. 
And Solomon says the worst part about this is that this man isn't the only one who's affected. He has a family. He has a son. And he's left with, with nothing to give to his son. That which he trusted in and loved most has let him down and cost him everything. So no matter how safe you believe your financial situation and future may be, it is foolish to rest on that financial situation for your ultimate security in life. Because such a one lives a hard, miserable life. And Solomon says there's the terrible outcome of this in the verses 15 through 17. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. So here's this man, he's lost everything, he's broken. He's destined to leave life as he came. Solomon says, he came in with nothing. You and I, we don't come into this life with anything. I've had four kids, and not a single one of them came with a hospital payment, you know, when they came out. You know, Here you go, Mom and Dad, here's $3,000 to take care of my hospital bills, right? If anybody knows the secret of that, let me know, okay? We don't bring anything into this life, do we? And Solomon says that we don't take anything with us either. And see, here he presents this man as someone who's, who's alone, he has nothing, he's going to leave this life with nothing. But the reality is this, even if he had wealth to his name, he's still leaving life the same way he came in. You can have an elaborate funeral, you can donate your fortune to charities, you can leave a legacy for your kids, but the one thing you cannot do is transfer the wealth of this life to the next. You cannot pile all this up and say, I'm just going to take it with me. Now you can... You know, the, the, other, the flip side of this is you can use everything that you have for the glory of God and invest in eternity, right, by using what we have here. But you can't take this and transfer it into whatever is next. And so once again, Solomon says, where's the profit? Where's the gain? Where's what's going to be left over for this one? He chased the wind and never caught it. He lost his object of worship and supposed meaning in a bad decision or a turn of events, and now his existence is frustrating. Solomon says he eats in darkness, he experiences sorrow and sickness and angry. He's in anger, he's angry at the turn of events that he experienced in his life. He is ashamed of the events that unfolded and left him in this position. Because here's what happens. We build in our lives little kingdoms. This is what's going to make me happy. This is where I'm going to find meaning. The money, possessions, the relationships, whatever. We build a little kingdom. We worship that. And we put all of our efforts into that. And sure, we may say nice things and do this and that. But, but, but. We know there's a problem because we're, we're building this kingdom. And one day God shatters the kingdom and we become very bitter and angry. And we shake our fists at God and we say, why would you do this? Why? Because God doesn't tolerate anything that challenges his glory. 
And if you are a Christian and you are giving your life to things that are not the kingdom of God and living for things that do not bring honor to God and trying to find meaning in those things, God's going to pull the rug out from underneath you eventually in an attempt to draw you back to himself. Because that's what God does. To the one who doesn't know him, he, he brings these things crashing down, seeking to turn our focus to him. God levels our idols because he will have no rivals. And so Solomon says at the end of this passage, there's a proper place for the wealth of this life. It is obvious we cannot say that being wealthy automatically makes one wrong with God, right? Read the scriptures. Men like Abraham, Solomon, David, others enjoyed great wealth and were blessed by God. So it has to have a proper place. And that's exactly what Solomon says at the end of this chapter. He said there's a proper place for this in our lives. Verse 18, he speaks to life's enjoyment. He says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Here is the settled end. It's one that is good and fitting, Solomon says, for these truths. Eat and drink and enjoy your toil, he says. What is he saying? He says, find meaning in the work that God has placed in your life. And again, we're going to see in just a second the godly perspective, but, but Solomon is, is kind, of, kind of giving us the precursor to that. He's saying, if, if this life is all you have, enjoy it while you have it. Solomon says that you toil here in the few days that God gives you. When you're young, those days don't seem so few. You feel like, well, I don't have just, I got a lot of days. You wish, you, you, you pine and wish the days away, right? You long to grow beyond whatever stage you're in and get to the next one. Maybe you, some of you kids are like that in here, you know. You know well, I can't wait till I, you talk to somebody who's like, they just had a birthday six months ago. They're counting down the days. I got daughters. I got a daughter like that, you know. She's six and a half, right? Six and three quarters. Because I want to be seven. I don't say that. I've been there, right? Now I'm like, I'm not that, okay. You know, you, kind of, you, kind of back, you start counting backwards at some point, I, I found out. Because the longer you live in life, the more you realize the days are few. One day you turn around and you have less days here than, you, than you've already lived. They've flown by. Solomon says if you're chasing wealth, trying to find fulfillment, you won't find it. He says live your life in enjoyment. Find purpose in the work that God has given you. But better than this... Find a godly perspective in these things in verses 19 and 20. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God is the giver of all gifts. 
Everything you have, you have because God gave it to you. You say, well, I worked hard for this. Who gave you the strength to work hard? He gave you the wisdom to invest. He gives you then the ability to enjoy it. And and that here is perhaps the biggest, the bigger point of verse 19. Not so much that God gives this to you, but he also gives you then the ability to enjoy what he has given you. There is a a great joy and contentment that God gives that we can enjoy what he has given in our lives. So Solomon says, enjoy the gifts of God. If God has given you wealth to enjoy, enjoy it in proper perspective. Rejoice in the toil you have been empowered to put in to gain it. And if you will turn to the Lord and follow him, he says your life will not be run by the ups and downs of chasing wealth. Solomon says that God has given us power to enjoy them if we follow him. He says, for we will, he will not much remember the days of his life because God gives, keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chasing fulfillment apart from God is a roller coaster. We've seen that. Up, down, round and round. We call it the circle, the cycle of life, right? And, and here's the difference. You're chasing all these things out here in the world. I want this, and I'm never satisfied. I'm covetous. I want it. I want it. I can't enjoy it. Why? Because it's like a moving target. The difference is God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if your focus is on him and serving him and rejoicing in him, then he gives you the ability to find joy in what you have and enjoy whatever he has gifted you. So those who rest in him and follow him can enjoy what's being communicated in verse 20 is a life of stability in him. See, here's the thing. This verse does not say that people who follow God will not have hardships. How many of you are followers of God and you've had hardships in your life? Okay. Some of you haven't, and I would like to talk to you about that, okay? As followers of God, we are not immune to the difficulties such as the things that are listed here. We've faced financial hardship. We've faced uh, things being taken away from us. We've faced uh, times in life where even though we had enough, we're we're so worried and caught up in it or, or something happens that threatens to take the joy of our lives away if we're tied up in that. But Solomon says this, a godly perspective allows you To continue on in joy, it allows you to live a life of stability in him. You do not have to live in despair and dejection and anger. You can face the times, the hard times, with the joy of the Lord and look back over your life and observe God's grace in your life. It doesn't mean you're not going to have times of hardship. It's going to mean that as you look back, you say, yeah, I mean, there's been some struggles, but my God has been faithful. And as you get towards the later years of your life, you can live those later years in joy and not in complaints. There's a subtle perspective here. As you go further down the 
trail of life, so I'm told. There is a tendency to say, well, life's not too great, right? Everything hurts and I'm dying, right? But if we live in the perspective of the Lord, we can live in the joy of the Lord. Sure, you can't do as much as you used to. Sure, you, you've had some bumps and, and, and falls along the way, but God has never changed and he's never left. So I'm going to keep serving him. You can live grateful to the Lord for the good things he has done instead of the hardships of the present. You see, when wealth isn't your God and good experiences aren't your goals, you can rejoice in the Lord for he is present in everything you face. His goodness and mercy do not disappear when we face hardship and loss. His riches, he promises to his faithful servants, do not fade. They are reserved in heaven. So pursuing him in all things is always worth it. The pursuit of money and possessions is unending and will never bring you true meaning and satisfaction. You and I cannot go through this life without money. That is an undeniable fact. It's just always true, right? You go to the store, you got to have money, right, to, to get through. we got to purchase food and housing and clothing and more. But you and I can go through life without making wealth and possessions our God. We do not have to serve the wants and desires of our flesh in this arena. And the further reality is this. Some people in life will enjoy nicer things than others. That's just the reality of the world we live in, right? God and his providence oversees all our situations. Some are born into wealthier families, have greater opportunities, make wiser decisions, and more. But rest assured, none of us experience what we experience outside of God's sovereign rule and reign. If you enjoy a a life of comfort and well-being, it is a blessing of God. If you struggle to fund the next meal, you are not abandoned by God. But if we attach our meaning in this life to what we can gain, we will be severely disappointed. We will never find enough gain in this life to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. It is an insatiable monster consuming whatever we place before it. The wealth of this world is finicky. And satisfaction is not only elusive, it's non-existent when we try to pin it to something in in this life. So let us rest in the Lord in these matters. Again, it's not wrong to enjoy nice things, nor is it wrong to work hard and make a good living. But it is wrong to regularly sacrifice the things of the Lord in order to do so. Our relationship with God is what brings us satisfaction and meaning. Our walk with him is what will put everything else in its proper place. So let us do as God commands, giving him the place he deserves in our lives, enjoying the good gifts he gives, living in his goodness. Solomon is a man who had it all. When it comes to, again, things that he's talked about, I think you would struggle to find anyone more qualified than Solomon. And under inspiration of God, he pens these things for us to remember today. No matter what we think will give us meaning, no matter what we think will will fill some void, God and God alone is who will meet that. And God and God alone 
is one who allows us and gives us the, the gift to enjoy those things in this life. Father, thank you for the day you've given us to be in your house. What a wonderful uh, day it is when we are able to go to the house of the Lord to worship together. And we pray that you would take the word of God and use it in our hearts this week. You would continue to resonate these truths of who you are, what you've done, what you call us to be. And you would compel us to living these realities out by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see that there's, there's no amount of money or possessions, wealth in this life that will ever give us meaning. Lord, we can plunge ourselves into debt time and again, chasing a dream. We can accrue to ourselves more stocks and portfolios, possessions and desires, experiences, And we've ever thought possible, but we will never find meaning there. We will only find continued emptiness and sorrow. Lord, help us instead to pin our fulfillment on a relationship with you. A relationship that doesn't just make an appearance a couple times a week when we walk into a church building, but a relationship that is nurtured each day as we open the word of God and spend time in prayer and respond to the word of God. Lord, then can we enjoy what is right and good and holy. We ask you would help us to live these truths out and use what we have for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. We pray now that you would give us a wonderful week. Bring us back here later on to worship you this week. Your name we pray. Amen.